Welcome back to the More Beach Meetings podcast. Today's guest is Davide Folletto Casali. Davide is a speaker, coach, and design principal in Automatic's design operations team. Automatic is, uh, if you're not familiar, is the developers of WordPress and several other projects. Previously, he designed various parts of the WordPress experience across web and mobile and the upcoming WooCommerce mobile apps. He's a polymath with a wide range of interest, as you'll hear in the upcoming episode, and they all contribute to his perspective on design. Davide, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing today? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you. You work for Automatic, correct? Uh, yes. What is your role there? I'm a design principal on the design operations team, and that's a kind of a rather new job. Okay. And what does that mean exactly? What does that role mean? Design operations is something that came up about two years ago or so, a little longer maybe. It's basically the design side of developer operations. So we focus on people, uh, so growth, uh, hiring, and so on, on uh, processes, so how to improve and make designers more productive, and uh, projects, so a high-level view of who works on what, how the talent is allocated, uh, and how we can uh, make sure that people work on what they like working on. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to get into that. But I know you also work on some of your own projects on the side as well. Can you mention some of the projects that you've worked on recently? Ah, Yes. So it's, I would say it's a bit haphazard in the sense that I'm a very curious person. So I tend to work depending on what's at the moment. So I like to change, you know. So for example, two things I can mention that are, in a sense, almost at opposite sides are on one side, we have this thing that I did during uh, the last couple of weeks, which is um, a Chrome plugin called uh, Bleep Home. That is just a very minimalistic extension for the new tab that you can you can try. On the other hand, we have these like more uh, theoretical, in a way, projects uh, like Make Meaningful Work. It's a project started a few years ago by Dan and Joe from Hong Kong, and connected a few designers all over the world. And we are trying to, you know put the foundation of new ways to shift the work that we do day to day to be more meaningful. As simple as it sounds as a goal, it's a very complicated problem. What is the nature of make meaningful work? Currently, I mean, it's it's been in development. So it started just as research. And now we are at the stage where they're basically defining, in a sense, the framework. We could say it's the curricula. There are, for example, workshops that we run. I run a few, they run most of them, of course. And the idea is just to give people the tools to reflect on the work they're doing, improve the quality of the work, improve the quality of the relationships they have, and hopefully try to work also on stuff that makes more sense for them. How do you find the time to to manage those, those different things? Time is difficult. I would say it's more of, I'm more driven by, by curiosity, but over the years, and a lot of failures because there are many, many projects that never see the light of the day. But I, I learned that I work in this concept of bursts. So some days I, I can get really full immersed in one thing. And so the skill I had to develop it over time is organize my work. So when I have these bursts of, uh, of focus, I can just do something. You know, I can start and finish something as small as it is. And so over time, they tend to build up. Uh, and that's something, maybe anything, could be maybe three articles, maybe sometimes is a short book, sometimes is a plugin like uh, the one we mentioned, like Blip Home. It has been more a process over the years to find the right way to organize the work. So I don't feel 
either the guilt or the pressure, and I can still do something. That resonates with me. That's so tough to, as a creative person, to not put the pressure on yourself to create all the time because you obviously want to create, but then you can start getting into this where it feels like it's a job to create. It's fine when it is a job, but what are some things that you do personally to tell yourself or maybe habits that you've created to be able to have those creative bursts? It's really try to, I mean, it's not easy, but it's really trying to understand that sometimes you can say no. You can say like, you know, tomorrow I can do whatever. I don't need to work on something. I don't have a delivery. Even if it waits one day, it's fine. And maybe it's one day, maybe it's an afternoon, maybe it's an evening, you know, can change. But that's, that's the ability of sitting down a moment for 10 minutes and saying, is it really important that I do that now? Can it wait tomorrow? And it's hard. It's hard. I'm not saying it's, it's an easy thing and I fail as well. But I found out that when I can, when, I achieve, when I'm able to achieve that, it's incredibly effective. And what does that translate to in terms of your main gig with, with Automatic? How does having this creative outlet help or uh, influence your work there? Well, first of all, I, I think I, the fact that I'm very curious that I, like, I have a wide range of things keep the creativity going for other things. So I've never like too closed. Well, of course, uh, I'm a person, so I'm probably failed that as well sometimes. But it gives me, you know, you know this wide perspective on things, on seeing uh, more than you know my strictly my job requires, and so I can bring on things from other disciplines. And in a way, it's also what driven my my career path because at some point I realized, you know, that the boundary of of design as it was defined weren't enough. So I started looking and researching and studying other fields, and that could be for me, for example, at one point more than five, 10 years ago was business. So I started studying how business run, how work, how the balance work, how can, you can balance you know, the, the accounting of business, even things like that. And that helped me incredibly because I started you know, understanding better how a business run and that made me a better designer. I feel that business is important, yes, but I don't think it's the only one thing. Maybe someone else has a different passion and they can bring that in, in their own job. So I feel that there is you know, some cross-pollination, I say, that keeps things incredibly fresh and an open side on on the world as it changes. How you found or came into this role at Automatic, you said you weren't quite as interested in business and then started studying that a little and that helped with your current career path. So how did you get lined up with this role that you have now? Yeah, well, that's interesting in the sense that, I mean, it's a new role, uh, like design operation, design producer, even if many people all over the world when they found the name and the definition, they're like, oh, well, I've always been doing that. So I had a little bit of that moment too, in the sense that sometimes I joke saying that design operation is exactly what I was doing before, but now I'm not doing design anymore. Because in the end, when you are a, a team lead or a division lead or a specialty lead, you know, you are doing a lot of things that are touching or similar to the design operation. So you're growing people, you're coaching people, you're organizing projects. And so the difference now is that before I just had, you know, 20% of the time to do that. And now it's 100% of the time doing that. So I can have a wider impact uh, on the company as a whole and hopefully also on the happiness of the designers I work with. What have you found to be effective in managing other designers? 
Oh, yes. So one interesting thing is that I don't manage directly, right? So I'm not a design manager in this role. Uh, I'm, a, in a sense, a support role. So I support both the design directors, design lead, and the designers themselves. So in regardless of the role. It's a really interesting aspect because, in a way, I believe that because I'm not directly involved in the dynamics of the team, I can be a little more objective. And I believe that also this makes me more, more trustable because there is no way I'm playing, I'm saying what I'm saying because I'm trying to achieve something for myself. It's always external, right? And so I believe that that helps a lot in the person-to-person dynamic in the day-to-day. And also really just having the time in the sense that given that now my 100% of my time is dedicated to that and I'm connected with other people that do my same job in other parts of the company, I have this like wider view of what's happening and it's easier to coordinate, you know, best practices, for example, like, oh, there is that team over there that is doing this process in this way and it's faster, it's leaner, it requires less, uh, you know, manual work. And so why are not we doing that? And so I take that, I propose to, to the team and if they like it, they start doing it, you know? And this can be incredibly effective, can save a huge amount of time to, to the team, but it's hard to do that in a specific in a design role or in a design uh, leadership role because you are you need to pay attention to other things yeah no that makes sense so creating the the new role is crucial and that gets to a point that you've written about some and, and we've talked about before um and that is organizing the organization or how the organization is structured and how that kind of determines what's being created can you dive into that a little bit usually i start with the conway slow which I consider a kind of fundamental role of organizations. Uh, it's something that anyone that works and deals with high-level organization design should know. And the overall idea of Conway's law is that the way you structure the teams inside a company is reflected in the way your product, your service will happen to be. This means that if you organize your team, for example, in a team that works on ticketing, a team that works on sales, a team that works on uh, social media, then your product will have these like three aspects uh, that are kind of independent and there will probably rough patches to communicate with each other and to navigate to each other, for example. And instead, if you reorganize everything and instead of having three teams organized like that, you split like, oh, we have you know a high-level flow team, a front-end UI and a back-end team. And the problems in communication will be instead vertically, you know, across these, uh, these three teams. That's why the way you organize it, it shapes the way the product is shaped. So over the years, that's one understanding I went. So you start thinking in terms of a Conway's law, and you start understanding that if you want the product to be built and to succeed in a certain way, you need to organize the teams in the same way you want uh, the results to be. And that, for me, is the fundamental aspect of you know, the first building block. You need to understand that because, before you can do anything else. And it's one of the things, for example, we do in Automatic. So Automatic, we are not perfect in this, but our internal teams are fairly flexible in the sense that I've never been, even before, even before my current role, I've never been on the same team for for longer or, or the same project for longer than 12 months because there was always some change in the strategy and that meant that the team had to change. And our CEO, Matt, is very aware of this. So we use change to tackle these kind of more strategic problems. I wonder if change is somehow 
also to get fresh eyes on projects too. Is that an element of it? Just to always have new blood kind of looking at things from different angles? Oh, yes. Yes. You actually mentioned uh, another principle that I informally call the Broadway principle because it comes from a research that was done with the Broadway productions. And it's very interesting because they found out that the best Broadway production, you know, the most successful ones, were not the production with all innovators, like all new young people with great ideas, but they weren't even the, the production with, you know, the most senior, the most celebrated people in the industry. They were the, the production that had a mix of them. So that is very interesting because that means that you, you need to find a good balance between, you know, the old very expert perspective and at the same time this injection of creativity and ideas and novel perspectives from other people so how does automatic go about creating these teams and making sure that you have a good mix of of uh, disciplines and experience this is i would say that these are the theories and then you need to put the theories in practice but you are so you are driven by the theory but then you need to face the day-to-day limitations right so, for example, if you have a team of four people and you know you need someone with a different perspective, what we do, for example, we look first internally and we assess, okay, there is one person that may want to do this kind of job and that may have, may have the complementary skills that will benefit joining this other team. And if it's internal, great. Uh, otherwise, we have our hiring process. So I talk with the, with the people working on hiring and I'll try to figure out if we can maybe tweak the, the job description to be more in one direction. For organizing these, these teams and stuff, are there questions? Or let me backtrack a little. It seems like it'd be a little easier to go in with a new company understanding Conway's Law if you're some kind of startup and um, figuring out how you want to organize things. But if you're an established company that is trying to figure out maybe how to restructure, are there certain questions that can be asked ahead of time? Yes, this is, this is a very, very good question. I would say that the thing is, first of all, before doing any transformation, we need to assess what's happening. The premise is that, is that there is no company structure that is perfect, right? For example, a matrix organization, a horizontal organization, a vertical organization, all these structures have some benefits and have some negatives. You need to assess first the starting point. So what are the benefits they are reaping from this, this existing structure? And what there are the negatives, because and then you start to figure out where you want to go. So what are the problems you're trying to solve? What are the issues you're trying to solve? And what you want to do there is you figure out a new organization for the company that has the positive sides of what you are trying to fix, right? But at the same time, you also need to acknowledge that there are going to be negative sides. No solution is perfect. And on the negative sides, you need to see if these are acceptable negatives. If the organization as a whole can accept that this transformation will bring some benefits, but will also bring some negatives. And if the negatives are acceptable and the positives are exactly where you want to go, then that's a good transformation you want to have. So these are the questions I would ask, like where you're starting, where you're going, what are the issues you're solving, and what are the problem, the issues that you're getting that are going to be acceptable for the company culture. What's an example of negative that might be acceptable? Something that's not too detrimental, in other words. Let's say, for example, that, okay, a very simple company organization. This is similar to something that was happening in Automatic recently. Imagine a company that has 
a lot of uh, small independent uh, product teams. Each product team is a self-sufficient unit. So they are assigned a part of the product and there is a designer, there is a group of developers, maybe there is a project manager, but they're self-sufficient. So they can take all the necessary decisions as, as long as they achieve the goal that the team was given. It's a good running team, right? What are the negatives here? Well, the negatives from this structure is that coordination across teams be, is a difficult, right? Because the team is self-sufficient, they can take decisions, but it also means that they need to proactively communicate with all the other teams to synchronize and make sure that they're doing, you know, a unified experience, for example, or a unified developer infrastructure or framework. Now, think a different company that is instead centralized. So you have a single design team. The difference is clear, right? Independent units or a single central design team, a single engineering team. The second is more flexible because you can move people around more easily. You can assign them to projects more easily. And the benefit of a centralized solution, what is it? It is that the experience is going to be more consistent, more coherent, right? Because all the designers know what which other designer is doing. So it's easier to coordinate. It's easier to think solutions end to end. What are you losing there? Well, the thing is, given the, the structure, then it becomes slower to you know, react to issues because the team is not focused on a specific part of the project anymore. And it's also slower to take decisions because, of course, things tend to be more coordinated across. And even just the fact that you need to talk to two more people, it slows the process down. Maybe it's just an hour, but still it's slowed down. So if this is acceptable, so this kind of slowdown is acceptable, then you're, you get a huge benefit, which is a really higher degree of a more consistent and coordinated user experience, right? Can you accept that? Is your company fine with that? That's a question, you know, for the vice president, CEOs uh, that define the long-term strategy. If yes, then you can go forward with the tra that transformation. I want to talk a little bit about remote work and uh, distributed companies. I know when we've talked before, you've you've mentioned that every big company is is remote. Can you describe that in a little more detail for listeners? Uh, yes, absolutely. And thanks for bringing this up because it's you know it's an uh, a self-evident truth, but it's people need to realize this, is that when you think a company that starts, there are five people in the same room. They are local, they work perfectly. And then they start growing and becomes a floor. An entire floor is the company. And then becomes two floors. And then maybe it becomes the entire building. And then two buildings. And then becomes two cities and then two countries. And then it's all over the world. What's the outcome of this? Well, it means that you have, you know, you are remote. So you have a central point that is all over, but everyone else for you, from your subjective perspective, is remote from you. This is very different from a company like Automatic because we are instead completely distributed. There is no central point anywhere and we are all all over the world and we communicate in the same way. So when you think in this way, you notice that remote doesn't just mean a company that has an office somewhere and some people working from home, but that any company large enough is already remote. And this means a lot of different things compared to a distributed company because it's harder for them to scale because a distributed company is naturally able to scale. They don't have an obstacle in finding a new office or in finding, oh, you know, we use it to meet in person in a room. And if you're growing, we can't do that anymore. And how can we do that? And so they need to change their own processes. 
if you're already distributed, so fully remote, that's already done from day one. So it's easier to scale. It seems like uh, another example of Conway's law, or maybe a cousin of Conway's law, where you can't scale or, or you have difficulties in um, growing as a company dependent on how you've decided to organize from the beginning. If you've decided to be distributed, then you, you don't run into some of the, the same barriers that you would otherwise if, you, if you're in an office location. What do you think some of the benefits are in terms of communication with a distributed company that a larger remote company wouldn't have to, to deal with? So I think that the main major benefit of a fully distributed company is that there are no two tires of people. So what I mean with this is that when you have a large organization or people working from home and from an office, you have some people that, oh, you know, we can have a chat at the desk. I can come over to you. We can meet in, in a meeting room for a brief exchange. And, and so you have this kind of exchange that is very quick, very intense in a way. And, but also it's not tracked anywhere. Like it's, in, it's invisible. And so when you need to talk with someone remote, you need to repeat everything that was discussed. You need to redo the discussion from scratch. You need to summarize. You need to do a lot of work to, to do because some communication happened in one way and some communication happened in a different way. But if you are already remote, you have only one way of communicating. And everyone uses it the same way. There is no two tires. There is only one tire of people and it's all remote. And this simplifies so much, so many parts of the organization because you just have to do things once. I'd love to jump into the hustle round here, Davide, and ask you some more, uh, some more pointed questions and, and then uh, we can move through. Okay. All right. First question in the hustle round. What is a quote or piece of advice that is on your mind? I think it's uh, one I use often, actually. It's Be Water, My Friend, which is a quote from Bruce Lee. And I use this quote not just because I love the quote, because, you know, be ad adaptable, be understanding, and be able to sense your, the world around you before you move. But also because Bruce Lee is a representation of someone that was both, you know, a physical expert of martial arts, but at the same time a philosopher, and at the same time a researcher, and even if he's not widely known. So it was a very interesting person. What is an activity outside of work that you've learned from? I, was, I cannot really say. I would say that for recently, I've been focusing on studying more uh, stand-up comedy, which is, for me, very interesting because it's just one person that needs to hold the entire audience. You need to prepare your lines. You, need to, you know, there is a lot of work that's, that happens when, to do stand-up comedy. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. It's an incredibly hard job. And so by studying, you know, how the different comedians do their job, how some, for example, are not entirely comedy, you know, some do a lot of society criticism, for example. For me, this is, has been recently um, a big interesting topic to study. So you're studying it in hopes of going on stage and doing stand-up or just as an interest? No, well, I mean, there are benefits for my speaking because if be a little lighter and a little finer, of course, the audience <laughs> reacts better. But also, there are a lot of things that then are reflected because even when you talk to other people, when you interact with other people, sometimes you don't always be need to, so serious. And how you hold an audience, that's, again, very useful for workshops. So it, it trickles down in a lot of different activities. Next question is, what is your favorite productivity tool at the moment? <sighs> that's a tricky one because I tend to change them a lot. <laughs> 
in the sense that I, I, you know, different moments in my life, I always changed the way I organized myself. For a time, I even just I had a sheet of paper in front of me. I just took notes every day and I updated it. So currently, it's it's probably in terms of software, pure software is probably things that helps me uh, organized. But I want also to quote, to mention like um, an unrecognized one that is Google Spreadsheet. How do you use Google Spreadsheet personally? If you consider that as not really a spreadsheet, you know, oh, it's an, this kind of analytic tool, but it, you consider that as, oh, it's a way to organize, organize anything in a table. So in a grid, sorry. That becomes even more abstract and you can start thinking about it in ways that are like, oh, you can, with a grid, you can do a lot of stuff. Right, and 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 when on top of that you add that uh, Google has allows you to run surveys that fill automatically a spreadsheet, then it becomes interesting because you can work with others, you can share a link, and people fill it out, and it's very quick for them because it's just a few questions, you know. But automatically you can fill a Google spreadsheet and do again automatically calculation on that on these results, and you get really nice data out of it. It can be very powerful. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite uses for it. When you mention the the surveys, and, and especially if you're doing any kind of kind of product discovery or, or any kind of experimentation with with startups and projects and trying to find where problems are, just putting out a simple survey and then you get all this data <laughs> linked up to a Google spreadsheet. It's like the easiest tool that, that anyone could ask for. Okay, next question: Who is an influencer, or what is a book that you've been obsessing about recently? I'm going with a book. I will because again, it's very difficult to pinpoint one person. And I say that the, a recent one I've been reading is uh, "Sure, You're Joking, Mr. Feynman," which is uh, a book of stories told by Feynman himself. And it's so fascinating to see his perspective on the world because it's, he was a very you know smart person. I mean, Nobel Prize winner for physics, but also he has this talent in storytelling. And you see a lot of his personality outside his work that is very, very fascinating. And there are some some insights, but it's also very easy read. Before we wrap up, I wonder what you have going up there right now. Do you have a message that you have for listeners out there before we sign off? One message that I could say is uh, improve your feedback skills. This is my talk I, I gave last year in a few places. But the overall idea is that when we we have a concept we need to discuss. We often tend to focus too much on the part when we disagree instead of the part we agree on. And I believe that we, if we start considering starting point, okay, we disagree on a lot of things, but what is the part we agree on? And we start from there. I believe that a lot of you know work, but also life, uh, could be radically improved. Davide, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time and, and all the good insights that you've shared with us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy. All right. Thanks for listening to the More Beach Meetings podcast. Just to reiterate a couple of the things that Davide mentioned during the hustle round. The book that he mentioned is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Fenman. It's available on Amazon and, and all across the web. It looks hilarious. And if anyone was wondering any stand-up comedy that he's been watching recently, we mentioned after the call that you really enjoyed Nanette by Anna Gadsby. That's available on Netflix. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.